The epitaph of the Canadian oil sands has been written many times. But far from dying or being dead, oil production is actually expected to rise in the next few years by about 500,000 barrels per day, or about 15%. That's according to S&P Global Commodity Insights' 10-year oil sands outlook, which was released last week, in which analysts revised their expectation of oil sands growth upward for the first time in over half a decade. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Kevin Byrne, Chief Analyst of Canadian Oil Markets at S&P Global Commodity Insights, who talked about why the oil sands are entering an age of optimization. Context is always important. If you think back to 2020, which was the beginning of the pandemic, oil prices dropped so low that they were briefly negative, and many Canadian oil companies came close to financial insolvency until a wave of consolidation swept the sector. As Byrne explained, from the ashes of that consolidation, oil sands production is now rising through efficiencies and optimizations. So we may not be building new oil sands projects, but production is increasing. And Byrne predicted oil sands production will peak in a few years and stay flat until 2030 and then gradually decline. Of course, predictions are rarely correct. So this episode tries to probe where exactly are we in the energy transition? As always, the interview is edited for Clarity and Brevity. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business today. Thanks for having me. So for the first time since 2018, oil sands production is going to increase above and beyond what you thought. And this is a big increase. It's about 500,000 barrels per day by 2030, which represents a 15% increase. You know, there's so much talk about we're in an energy transition. We're transitioning away from fossil fuels. Many people may think oil production is going down. So what's happening here? We're, we're not necessarily building new oil sands projects. So our outlook has been fairly consistent over the last five or six years. But the composition of drivers has changed in that outlook. Earlier on in the oil sands outlook, there would have been more green fields, which are brand new projects being built. There's none of those in our outlook. And then there's brownfield projects. And those are when you build a new processing unit, you bring in new steam boilers. Those are the things you need to extract oil sands. We don't really have those either. What we're seeing is the industry ramping up installed capacity and then people that are running their plants figuring out how to optimize them. They have every incentive of using the energy they use right now to produce the most amount of oil. And that's what we're seeing them do. We're seeing efficiencies coming to the system. It's hard for us to forecast efficiency improvements because these are things the operators discover through running their plants. And we're not, we're not an operator. We don't have that inside baseball, right? Um, so it's harder for us to anticipate them. But the other thing that's happened is we have seen the consolidation. These oil sands companies are left. There's five of them that represent you know, 90% plus of the output. They now have acquired the assets around them. And they're looking at those assets around them. And that means what they would have had originally as the highest quality, now they have a bigger plate or buffet to choose from. And so we see them you know, announcing their intention to build into those areas and leveraging their existing extraction facility. And that means that they're high grading the assets they have, which means they may be able to produce more oil with the infrastructure they have because the quality of what they're able to drill into is higher. And just to go back, what I think of high grading that is something I typically associate with a short-term outlook, like we're never going to get to the low-grade stuff, so let's just mine the high-grade stuff while we still can. 
generally it's always most efficient to go after the highest quality first because it's the lowest cost to you. I thought you're supposed to blend. I always thought like what you do is you say like, well, we've got, you know, 50% low grade, 50% high grade. So we'll do both. If you're actively developing, you'll see that happen in, you know, mines. That's not just neural sands. Mines generally, they will blend to hit a specific ratio to keep that fairly constant. But if you have a large portfolio of assets, where are you spend incremental dollars? You're going to choose the ones that give you the best returns earlier. Generally speaking, not universally true. And I think it's not appreciated in a system like the oil and gas that the holdings of best versus worst quality are not equitably distributed. It's not a public resource. Companies acquire that resource or the right to extract that resource, and your best may be someone else's worst. But through the consolidations we've had, all these companies have gained a larger portfolio. And so now they can optimize within a larger selection. Now, there's other considerations here. How close is the next best to my existing platform, my existing base to reach out into, right? And so that comes into play too. So you see a lot of these kind of step-out optimizations occurring in and around, or they're talking about it, in and around the Christina Lake area of the oil sands region, which is largely regarded as one of the higher quality thermal regions there is. And so you see them talking about moving into land they may have not had before and bringing that back to their central processing unit that already exists. Uh-huh. So I want to put this all into perspective because we're talking about a 15% increase in oil production from the oil sands by 2030. When I look at oil consumption, most of our oil goes to the U.S. and the U.S. used about 20 million barrels per day in recent years. And something like 70% of that goes to transportation, 25% goes to industrial uses. But it would seem to me that both of those uses would be under pressure so you don't have to know that much about supply and demand to understand that if demand is decreasing and supply is increasing, that would not necessarily be an ideal investment outlook. So what's missing from the analysis I just presented? There's a few moving pieces there. First, our outlook is that oil sands will capture most of that growth we talked about in the, the next three to four years by around 2026. And then our outlook is fairly flat. And we do see a peak in that oil sands production in and around the 2030 mark uh, before it begins a steady but very shallow decline. And that decline relates to the longevity of the resource, the profile of that resource. Declines in other plays will be much more steep. The second thing is that oil and gas generally is a game of being on a treadmill. It's a wasting asset. The minute you tap into a new reservoir, it is in decline. And so the, the active pace in the upstream is you have to continually drill out new resource and find new resource just to stand still. And so everything is declining in upstream oil and gas, but people are still bringing on supply at a rate that exceeds that. We are seeing generally capital being more concerned about longer lead time projects. So longer lead time out-of-pocket capital investments or capital-intensive projects, like would have been oil stands greenfield or deep water offshore, because of the time it would take to return that capital. You know, you and I, you know, we can open up the newspaper and we can feel fairly confident about what demand looks like right now and demand is going up. You know, I think right now the, the best way to think about the oil market is it's waiting for that demand. The Chinese economy is expected to push demand higher on the back end of this year, which should tighten the market and should put some upward momentum on the prices. And I think generally we see global oil demand increasing for the next few years before hitting a, a rough plateau. And what happens in North America is just a, a fraction of what happens in the world. So the Canadian oil barrel goes into the U.S. Midwest and goes into the U.S. Gulf Coast and goes into heavy complex refineries. And North American demand, if refined product were to shift within the continent, 
that doesn't preclude the ability of the U.S. complex to export based on the competitiveness of those refineries. And so the likelihood is the U.S. will export more over time as well. Certainly, these are outlooks, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to profess that the outlooks are perfect. We've just, you know, the, the reason we're talking is we made a, a revision. The revision we made to our outlook was about 140,000 barrels by 2030. It may seem like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but it's a 2.5% change to our outlook. And that goes to the scale of the oil sands. It is a large system. So even a small percentage gain and I'd call it efficiency that's driving it can result in a, a notable volumetric change. But I want to hone in on something you said. Production peaks in 2030 from Canadian oil sands. Yes. Right. And global production peaks in 2030, I think, is what people believe. That's generally what you see in a lot of forecasts. They have the latter half of this decade being in around the time they see the potential for an inflection point. I think the thing here is that this isn't necessarily an activity focused on just increasing supply. In the oil sands, the driver here are operational efficiency improvements. So they're not looking at drilling out to incrementally grow production. They're looking at utilizing their facilities to maximize output. I get what you're saying. We're talking semantics. But it is about driving costs down on these facilities by maximizing output using the existing kit that you have in place. It's not necessarily about hunting and gathering new incremental resource here. Right. They're not building new oil sands projects. But one of the findings from your report today was that capital expenditures reached a peak last year. The capital expenditures we saw in the oil sands last year were the highest level since 2015. So that's kind of the end of the boom period that we saw, you know, through the 2003 to, you know, 14 period. And we think the largest driver here is not because they're, they're spending a ton of new capital here. They're fighting off inflationary pressures associated with the inflation period we saw in the last couple of years and labor inflation as well. I see. The capital expenditure is not an indication the industry has really changed their strategy here. They are going to spend capital, but in terms of optimization, those expenditures and optimization have a benefit of often reducing their costs as well. You spend a little bit of money, you can reduce your operating costs, and maybe you can produce a few more barrels. It makes you more efficient. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Let's talk about the supply and demand picture just so that I can understand this a little better. Right now, Canada is the biggest source of oil in the U.S. Yeah, it's 60%, something like that, yeah. Yeah, but there are significant competitors, right? So Saudi Arabia supplies about 7%. And what I always hear is that Canadian oil is really expensive compared to Saudi because in Saudi Arabia, you can basically just turn a tap on, put it into a barrel, and you're done. Whereas Canadian oil comes out as hard as a hockey puck, and it takes a lot of energy, i.e. money, to convert that into a usable, sellable product. And so that's why I often hear from other analysts that the future of it is somewhat murky because Saudi Arabia can produce it so much more cheaply. And it's things like the carbon tax and other renewable energy gets cheaper, it will have a hard time competing for what is diminishing demand. That's why I'm just trying to understand, will Canada still be selling this into the U.S.? Will new markets open up? What do you see happening? Well, maybe I'll go back. The U.S., invested in heavy complex refineries. So we're going to get a little wonky here, but there are different types, different quality of crude. You kind of alluded to it, the density of Canadian crude being much higher than a, a Saudi crude, for example. Refiners will invest in the ability to process that crude. 
And so the U.S. invested in, in these heavy, complex refining capacity decades ago. And they did so to take advantage of growing Latin American heavy salad crude oil, which is similar to the Canadian oil sands. And then as Canadian volumes grew, many Canadian producers in the oil sands opted to not invest in what was heavy processing capacity upstream in Canada. So that would have been these original lines that were built were built with upgraders. And upgraders, what they do is they remove the heavy components of a Canadian bitumen barrel and convert it to a synthetic crude oil. So it's a lighter crude oil. That would be closer to like a Saudi barrel. Many chose not to invest in that because the building of these upgraders was very capital intensive. But over this 50-year period or 40-year period we're talking about, the Latin American crudes, and this is an important concept that goes to the future market demand or the availability for these crudes, these Latin American crudes reached a maturity level. So the plays they were extracting from, they began to decline. They were unable to drill at the rate to increase output anymore. And the, the, the remaining resource was not sufficient to keep up with the treadmill we talked about. And so Latin American heavy crudes are or have been declining. And so the Canadian crudes have really, you know, the last, I'd say, decade, their market has been really taking that market from the Latin American crudes that have fallen off. They found a home in the U.S. because their traditional competitors have seen production fall off. And at the same time, this all happened in the last, they say, you know, material oil sense growth the last 15 years. The U.S. underwent their own revolution. They underwent the shale gale and then the tidal boom and became the world's largest producer of crude oil in a decade. And that crude oil they produced has been a light, sweet crude oil. And many said that Canadian barrels wouldn't find a home because the U.S. was swimming in more crude than they needed. And the U.S. became a major exporter through that period. But the reason the Canadian barrels found a home is because the Canadian barrels were heavy, sour crude oil targeting a heavy, complex refinery. And the American barrels were light, sweet. They targeted a light, sweet refinery. The U.S. consumed more of their own crude, certainly. But they also, that barrel went offshore to be exported. And that's what allowed the Canadian heavy barrel to continue to gain market share in the United States, even as they were undergoing their own boom in production. It is a fascinating trade because the U.S. has an oil boom, but then it simultaneously starts to import massive quantities from Canada. This all kind of makes me think back to the peak oil debate from about a decade or so ago, when people said oil production has peaked, we're not finding new oil deposits, production will now start to decline. And instead, as we know, fracking became a thing. And as you just said, U.S. oil exports rose in a big way. So I bring up peak oil because I wonder about how far this optimization of the oil sands can go. We may not be building new greenfield projects, and maybe you can tell us if you think we ever will. But regardless, can the existing oil sands produce indefinitely through optimization and efficiency? I I always hesitate to say never. I'm a third-party observer. I'm not. I don't produce anything in, in the oil business. I produce information. There are people that are trying to advance new projects. They're building off of pilots, and they like to build a, a full-scale facility. When we look at it, we think the biggest driver of the oil stance today is optimization. So whether they are successful in building their project or not, the existing stall capacity is so much larger. That's what's driving our outlook, right? And that that outlook is about really about cost management from the producer's perspective, maximizing the returns in their facilities, first and foremost. So that's about minimizing costs. And they can minimize costs by increasing the per unit output because they're using that plant to its maximum. And that's what we see driving here. So it's an efficiency play, 
because if you think about your cost structure, it's per input. So they can reduce their cost through these optimizations, but by increasing output, it reduces their per unit cost as well. It makes them more efficient. And by using the infrastructure you have, in many of the cases here, the emissions implications are rel- relatively negligible. They're running the boiler like they would have run it before. Maybe it'd be a few points lower in terms of percentage, but they're using that steam, for example, to produce more oil, not using the steam at a reservoir that may not be as productive. So I want to maybe pivot a second. What does an increase in oil production mean for climate change and efforts to shift away from fossil fuels? What does it tell us about everything that we know is happening? Like in Canada, we have a carbon tax. We have electric vehicle mandates. In the U.S., there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which many analysts believe could unlock hundreds of billions, if not a trillion dollars in basically supply side green energy. So renewables, despite all of that, demand for petroleum is going to increase. So for someone who's looking at this and doesn't understand it, how do you explain that to them? Well, you're right. When we look at global energy demand, four-fifths roughly remains dependent on fossil fuels. And that, that includes coal, crude oil, natural gas, and other fuel mixes. And we're seeing that move with basically population demand and economic growth. That doesn't mean it will continue forever. It doesn't mean we won't get dilution or replacement. It doesn't mean it could happen more rapidly than not. But it's the scale of the system. It's it's massive and, it, and it, it's very, very large. So you, your question here is, what would it take to get it to turn over? We do think it turns over. You know, maybe I'll just take one step back. The existing installed infrastructure we have in place remains dependent on fossil fuels. We are having increasing amounts of electric vehicles being sold. The existing fleet is remaining primarily powered by ICE. And ICE stands for internal combustion engine. These things take time to turn over. And so in that interim period, you need the stability of, frankly, these fuels to ensure that we have price stability or price affordability. Because if we don't, we get ourselves into the potential that you could have an unwinding of the policy or policy instability. Those, those climate policies are so important to enable a transition. We have price instability, and I mean really high prices, where it becomes unaffordable. The governments will probably move to protect the people from that. And that means those policies that are important for transition can be weakened or walked back. That's not what we saw through COVID, by the way, or through the Ukrainian invasion, particularly in Europe. We saw the Europeans as a major energy consumer actually recognize that their path to energy security is more renewable. And we saw a doubling down on the policies in Europe. And that accelerated some of the transition in our modeling as a result. I'm sure policymakers have thought about COVID in Ukraine. You said also that four-fifths of energy is fossil-based. And I wanted to ask if that has changed at all in recent years. You know, it's been roughly four-fifths for a long time. Okay. That has not changed. That isn't to say we're not deploying increasing amounts of renewables. They're going in taking the demand that would have otherwise gone to fossil fuels. So maybe just to put a cap on all of this, the federal government is advancing an oil and gas cap, which would establish an absolute oil sands emission target. Is that the sort of biggest risk to your outlook that production will increase? Like, is that the single biggest factor that could change whether oil sands production increases or not? It certainly has the potential impact our outlook, depending on the timing and the stringency of what that cap looks like. But it comes down to what is the cap look like? What's the level of stringency? And what time frame is it to achieve? You know, when you think about the oil sands, over four-fifths of their emissions, and I'm just ballparking here, comes from stationary combustion and the combustion of natural gas, 
principally to produce steam. And that sort of energy transformation that's occurring in the oil sands lends itself very well to CCS carbon capture and storage. And those CCS projects are large, cap-intensive, multi-year development projects that take time. And as you and I are talking, it's mid-2023. And if you just ballpark a CCS plant, it takes five years to get a large-scale one up and running. I could be wrong. We could, I could be overestimating. I could be underestimating a year. But you get my point. It puts us into 2027. And none of those plants are currently under development because they're waiting for clarity on the policies from the government. And they're waiting on clarity in terms of food development studies right now. So as I think about the lessons that one can draw, one idea that comes to mind is Canada has spent a lot of time from a policy perspective on sticks as opposed to carrots. That is, we had this long debate about the carbon tax, which thankfully is finally over, but it's now clear it's not going to strangle the oil sands production because they're growing until, conceivably, until demand grows. So one lesson, perhaps, is that sticks do not always work the way policymakers and people think they will. And the carbon tax certainly, of course, has not killed the oil sands. I don't prescribe that any government is trying to kill the oil sands. I think the government is trying to develop policies that will reduce the emissions to meet our our Paris commitments. And they're trying to do so to minimize the economic impact on the population. Like any government, if you start impacting the economy in too dramatic a way, that that means that the likelihood of you being reelected falls. And, you know, from where I sit, where I look at, you know, investment and flows, you need policy stability because policy instability can be as damning for the economy as specific policies that are you, you think are too stringent. I think there's been a lot of things said about the oil sands around its cost structure and its carbon intensity and stuff like that that may not have proven to be true, right? I think the epitaph of the oil sands has been written many, many times and the oil sands continues to chug along because the cost structure isn't what people anticipated. Right? Yeah, they considered the full uh, full cycle cost of oil sands versus the half cycle cost of oil sands. And what I mean there is the cost to continue to run these facilities is rather competitive globally. Now, the cost to develop a new one, that's a different conversation, which is why you see them looking towards optimization, not necessarily new development. I, I say that... But the prices we've seen over the last 18, 24 months is such that you could build a new oil sands plant if they chose to. The priorities of these companies have changed, though, from the mentality of even five years ago. The priorities of the oil sands, like all upstream EMP in North America, are about returning to value to shareholders now. The shareholders are not interested in how many barrels they produce, per se. They're interested in those returns, which is a financial thing. And that's what's driving them. The challenge with large-scale CCS is that still has to generate a positive return for them. And I, I think you're right about the carbon tax. You know, the carbon tax was meant to incent and change behavior. And we have seen intensive improvements in the oil sands, but not probably the degree that which society would like to see. CCS can do that, but it, it takes time to be developed. And the cost environment, you know, the, the carbon price required to incent CCS at the scale the industry is talking about probably won't reach that level until the end of the, towards the end of this decade. And so if we wait till then, then we're, you know, add five years from now, then add another five years, we're too late almost to get going if we want to have a material change. So when I think about emission reduction and I think about Canada, I think about this decade being absolutely critical to put in place the, the infrastructure and the developments needed to start to really bend the curve in the next decade. Now, that may not seem popular, but these things are complex. They do take time. 
And that doesn't mean we shouldn't take action. We should just not necessarily expect that action to show up in the numbers right away. It takes time to build scale to replace things that already have scale. Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Well, it was good connecting. Thanks for reaching out. That was Kevin Byrne, Vice President and Chief Analyst of Canadian Oil Markets at S&P Global Commodity Insights. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting Down to Business by sharing episodes or liking us on whatever app you used to listen to this. Thanks to Bryce Hall for producing this episode, composing and performing the original music, and designing the Down to Business logo. Thanks to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with another episode of Down to Business in the future. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.